How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Setting Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Jade, and this is Future Setting. So, today we will meet a woman who goes by the name of The Nature's Apprentice. It's a humble title. And it honours her place in the order of things that recognises her life as a journey of learning and that celebrates natural curiosity and encourages us to deepen our listening and sharpen our primal intuition. Claire Dunn is with me today and she's a bit of an enigma who somehow feels more human than most, yet without the trappings that modern day man is renowned for. She's the author of two books, My Year Without Matches and Rewilding the Urban Soul. And she guides experiences etched deeply in the natural world uh, from nature-based leadership programs, vision quests and kids camps through to community fireside gatherings and urban rewilding days all alongside her barefoot exploring existence. So join me because I'm going to take a really big deep breath and welcome this marvellous creature to today's Future Steading conversation. Claire, welcome. Thanks so much, Jade. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, recently I um, delivered a number of um, conversations at the Off-Grid Living Festival and I had a packed tent in front of me and I asked everybody in the room who had spent more than a couple of nights on their own in the bush. And even with 200 or so people staring back at me, not a single hand went up. Yet you did exactly this for more than a year. I would love to understand and scratch the surface of the psyche that decided that this was something that was luring and calling you. How the heck did you decide that that was what you wanted to do? And then tell us what that was about. Mm. Yeah, thanks, Jade. I'm, I still I still marvel at the fact that only a couple of hands could go up out of 200 yeah. I just at the Off-Grid Living Festival. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like I was in the town hall in the city. I was at a festival right. of like-minded folk. Right. Yeah. No, it, it amazes me and it realizes um it helps me realize how much I take for granted my deep need for true off-grid time mm-hmm. where it's, you know, really really offline from any kind of uh social identity or association with my human identity as much as possible um and yes of course the year that I spent um living in the woods and practicing wilderness survival skills and apprenticing myself to the the larger conversation felt like you know it's interesting you frame the question as what what made me decide to do that but it felt like it was as much a kind of um wasn't really a choice in a way like life was it was imperative life was was leading me in that direction but the the kind of external turn of events that um that led me there was was um well my career at the time which I wouldn't have called it a career but I was working in in the conservation world as a campaigner with the wilderness society and throughout my 20s really that had been my um my passion ever since I kind of, you know, left left home and discovered the, well, it, it kind of eco-awakening moment where I discovered mm-hmm. that we're actually in the midst of the sixth extinction spasm and ecological crisis. And it really was like my world turning upside down and, and for about a decade that was the imperative, <clears throat> was to do what I could to be the voice for the voiceless and to lend my whole being, lean my whole being into this project of um, protecting what's left, which I did in lots of different grassroots organisations and, and mostly forest conservation but other wild areas. But what started to happen, which was quite inconvenient and quite confusing, was <clears throat> as um, yeah, as I kind of became a bit long in the tooth in campaigning world, which doesn't take long, I simultaneously started to feel a sense of burnout but but more so a kind of allurement towards um 
deep immersive experiences in nature. Mm. So I really wanted to experience for myself the kinds of places that I was trying to save and and know them, you know. What is the first bird that calls there in the morning? Which way does the weather come in from? What's the mm. feeling of the, you know, the first real crisp autumn morning in this particular forest? Um, and this what started to happen is my psyche started to really yearn for and turn attention towards the human nature relationship. And I came to see in kind of in an intellectual way, but also in a, in a wholehearted kind of yearning that what I needed to do and what the, the Western world was missing was yeah. this deep interconnectedness, um, this healing the rift of separation between humans and nature, knowing that as we grow to love the earth and love um, love where we are, love our places and, and deepen our roots and deepen our sense of belonging, then care naturally extends. It doesn't need mm. you know, bells and whistles and campaign slogans and, and economic um, validation. It's just It's just inherent in us. So it started out as a kind of dawning realisation and then I started to kind of feel, I guess, what you'd call, what I'd call now a, a kind of calling to initiation or a calling to adventure, that sense of I needed to leave my known environment, I needed to leave all my social identities as I had built them up in my 20s um, and go into a period of, of um yeah, deep introspection and contemplation in wild nature. And it didn't really feel like a brave or lofty idea at the time. It just felt like what was happening. Uh, I started to, my dreams started to change and started to be populated by images of the wild and archetypal images of, um, you know, the forests and, and descending, descending from apartment blocks and going into the forest and undoing everything that had been kind of created in my world. So I started just really following this thread. I was quite a passionate, determined um, young woman. And this meant going off to the States to study at um, Tom Brown's, Tom Brown Jr.'s tracker school, which was steeped in wilderness survival schools, skills and tracking and kind of shamanic practice, ceremonial practice, and also studying with um, people in Australia who'd been apprenticing to to these skills for many years and the, when the idea of the year-long kind of program came up, I just absolutely knew it's what I needed to do um, mm. and there was just such a fierce knowing and a fierce determination that this was the only thing that made sense to me was to really walk away from everything, which I did. I walked away from my very, like, great, you know, great job as a campaigner for the Wilderness Society of partner of five years, a community that I'd been living, you know, living happily in by the beach in Newcastle for quite a number of years and and just to take off, you know, really to to turn my my full attention to this inquiry really. What what would it be like? You know, what would it actually really be like to steep myself in the more than human world and to rely on my skills of survival, you know, to rely on myself and to meet the fears of the dark and of, you know, wild creatures and um, and to really, like, lean into learning ecological literacy. You know, what is it like to actually really have the time and the, the opportunity to to track every day and to notice the changing patterns of the seasons and to, um, you know, just the, the time it takes to actually learn what it's like to actually live intimately with the earth. So that was a project I set myself. And in my mind it feels intuitive steeped in intuition Mm. but you just said that you wanted to learn ecological literacy and I feel like we live in a world that doesn't even have food literacy or Mm. natural medicine literacy Mm. or um, you know connection to self very abundantly 
you know, swimming around us. And so to take the leap and the, have the confidence to lean into ecological literacy or the learning process that that unfolds feels courageous. And I'm sure you don't feel like it was courageous at the time you were just putting one foot in front of another and, and the days followed nights and suddenly you'd been there for an amount of time and, and your knowledge was was greater than it was the day before. But for so many people, and it's just, it's your normal, it's your natural, it's your benchmark, but for so many people, what you're saying, back to the original comment that I made, was that a night on their own in the bush wouldn't even be possible, let alone a whole year. Mm. Did you come out of that year feeling uh, like you had scun yourself? You know, you'd sort of stripped yourself bare and rebuilt back up from a really deep primal place to who you are now? Or is there, was it literally just a slow evolution? Well, it certainly wasn't how I expected transformation to look. You know, we have an idea of like, oh, I want to have this kind of experience. And, um, but then transformation is, (laughs) has its own Technologies (laughs) Technologies <laughs> its own timescale, which doesn't necessarily fit into a four-season cycle. I mean, there were so many different layers of what that year offered me, um, and yeah, some you know some of the expectations and desires and intentions I went in with were quite naive. Like, I'm going to learn ecological literacy. You know, of course, it, it's a lifelong project. But what yeah. in terms of that, it, it gave me the it gave me the skills and, and the kind of baseline baseline understanding of um, East Coast Australian plants and animals and how, you know, how it relates, the kind of baseline knowledge, but more so kind of a crossing that threshold so that I was fueling my own curiosity. So mm. I wasn't, I, I didn't, you know, I had enough knowledge and enough, I'd built up enough curiosity, partly through those who were mentoring me, um, that I could sustain my own curiosity, which is really key for it to be a lifelong project. So you had mentors throughout the process? We had some teachers come in and we, like, for instance, a bird language, um, you know, mm. a naturalist who specialised in bird language, which was absolutely fantastic. Like he he really helped open the doors of the forest to me because um, it's really hard to start from scratch on your own with just a yeah. bird book and a, and a, you know, pair of binoculars. It's like it's really hard to scratch the surface to start to, get in there enough to fuel your own curiosity. Yeah. So Where did you do it? Uh, it was a place called Halfway Creek on a private property, so halfway between Coffs Harbour and Grafton on okay. the north coast of New South Wales. Yeah. It was it was warm but also, you know, it was like zero degrees at night in, in winter. It did, it did really drop. Um, but, yeah, and we also had the wettest summer on, on record. So it had, its, <laughs> it, had, it had its challenges and, of course, part of that was building a shelter that would keep me warm and dry in all those conditions. Um, but what I kind of wasn't expecting was, of course, there was the <clears throat> the deep allurement and the kind of bliss states that come from deep connectedness and that kind of sense of expanded self. But also with that was when, when my social identity started to really rot away on the forest floor, it's, it can be, it's terrifying. It was terrifying. You know, really, that that sense of like, who am I? Like, who am I mm. if I'm if I'm not all those other things that I left, mm. and I'm just one kind of wanderer, a being, a being, a wild creature in the under the canopy mm. of the forest. <clears throat> um, it's all good and well to kind of talk about that in a poetic way, but actually, it could it no, was at times quite existentially terrifying, uh, mm. especially when it was you know, day after day after day after day. And the forest is constantly in flow. It's just, it's, you know, it's you're kind of just like a benign presence in a way. And um, mm. and all, all the kind of difficult human elements of my Western upbringing came up, you know, came to the forefront. All mm. my um, patterns around productivity and doing and, and needing a mission and a task and structure, it's like mm. the antithesis of, of the context that I was in. So all that just, you know, started smacking up against each other. Yeah, and you were in your own world, in your own head, having to <clears throat> to yeah. disentangle all of this sense of identity and values alignment and yes. existence <clears throat> all in one one head. That's right. Your internal monologue would be exhausting, I imagine. Yes. Yeah, I, absolutely, and without much human interaction, and I, I didn't have a lot of human interaction, I had some. 
with the others who were living on the property. But um, it was very much a solo wolf kind of Mm. pursuit for me, Mm. uh, which worked to really deepen my experience, but it also meant that by the end of the year, as you as you said in your question, I was a bit un, unscun. I was, I'd shed, I'd shed many skins, but there wasn't a sense of a new skin yet. Yes. <clears throat> um, when I was, I was reading about you in my research and all I kept thinking was of my grandfather's shed where he had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of skinned rabbits up over old uh, clothes hangers mm. and, you know, piles of scunned rabbits. And in my mind there were, that was sort of you. I was <laughs> imagining that's sort of the experience that you you went through. Tell me, there's a couple of questions I want to ask about um, while you're on it, but I want to understand when you came out of that, how did integration back into the noisy Western mm. identity-filled, ego-driven world fair how did you navigate that oh not very well (laughs) (laughs) no and this is where this is where I feel like if I was to offer you know a a kind of program like this the integration is so 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 fundamentally important and in Mm -hmm. fact last night we just held an integration call for a vision quest that we just ran which is 11 day program with a four day solo and more and more I'm seeing that integration is like the like the second half of the journey really Mm. um no I felt like it was um I was quite unguided and um kind of just tumbled out of that year knew I couldn't go back to my old hometown so kind of you know found the 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 nearest little village with you know enough kind of like-minded hippies around um, and attempted to attempted to start writing about my experience, which um, was really a um, not a very wise choice to make. What I needed to do was be um, in wild places with with good people, just kind of grounding, you know, mm, what, rather than that isolating process of writing. Yeah, there's one thing to be. I never really felt lonely when I was out in the bush. I felt at times like I was unraveling but it's different to the kind of loneliness that comes from being suddenly within four walls um, in front of a laptop and, you know, not, not surrounded by a community or like-minded people. Like that's, that's a whole different kind of um, mm-hmm. loneliness. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I really, yeah, it took me years, I would say years, to actually integrate my experience. And as difficult as the, the writing of the book was, it did take me deeper into the experience it kind of amplified and helped Mm -hmm. me to to really ground the experience as well as knowing that I would do it differently next time I'll just give myself a good year just literally just to integrate before trying to write about it yeah of course and intellectualize it and uh, our boys have just come back from a rites of passage process for um, entry into manhood our pathway to manhood and Mm. The thing that they are instructed to do at the end of it is to not put, put words to it because it limits the experience that it is and mm. um, it, it narrows it in order to explain it to others. So mm. they're encouraged to just not don't explain the detail and don't try to don't try to minimize the experience by adding mm. English explanatory words to it. You may not have the vocab to explain what the experience mm. in fact was, and that's okay. Just let yes. that be. Um, I would love to know why you are on it. This is sort of a bit two-pronged really. We talk a lot about ritual and, um, you know, those rites of rites of passage that <clears throat> are largely lost in today's Western culture. I imagine while you were out there on your own, you developed your own patterns and, and rewrote your own rituals and um, I'd love to know what that looks like while you're out there, but then also what it looks like now. Have you brought any of those with you and, and integrated them into your, your daily existence? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, that year really did um, and the kind of couple of years leading up to it, <clears throat> it did instill in me a love of ceremony and ritual, mm-hmm. um, you know, self-designed and community-designed ceremony which mm. I felt quite a novice at back then. You know, we were just 
experimenting with different forms and trying to kind of put something together and <clears throat> and um really in the years since then I've more and more so I've come to see how community generated ceremony and self-designed ceremony is such a key part of this whole kind of rewilding reconnection movement because it links nature and culture yeah and it links yeah, nature yeah. and culture really powerfully um, because it's recognizing actually what's happening in the seasonal cycle and what's happening in nature at the time and brings people together to celebrate or mark that and let that mirror something that's going on in their own life. So it's just such a powerful uh, reconnection tool on so many different levels. And so mm. I write about some of that in The Rewilding the Urban Soul, my you know latest book around how I incorporated that into the urban landscape and community generated ceremony being so vital for the whole project of urban rewilding it's so available to us um <clears throat> during the year you know it, it really was a, a sense of I was stripping everything back so I was everything was very very bare bones very raw very simplified um so I didn't really create a lot of ritual or ceremony for my experience it kind of when I look at it it the kind of the whole thing really was a ceremony um yeah. through my deep intention and and through the way I related to it so I was having experience like numinous experience both in my dream world in the day world that it was really exploring the mysteries of nature and psyche and I was kind of just working with those in my own way through yeah through my journaling and through my wandering you know wandering for me kind of it felt like a kind of threshold crossing every time I'd mm. set out on a wander and some of them were quite intentional and of course I didn't have a phone for the entire year so there wasn't that kind of like all right now I'm switching my phone off it was you know it was just a kind of continuity of um of that spaciousness but my wanders felt like ceremonial walks often just through the kind of um intention that I was taking out there and the mm. the awareness that I was offering the more than human world and how it was talking back to me um mm. so that's something I guide others in is how to make a kind of wander a, a really basic ritual you know just like a, a mm. you step over the threshold and make an intention and have certain guidelines to keep you in a kind of container um, in which, you know, extraordinary things are more likely to happen. Um, I wonder so sometimes I whether yeah. even making a cup of tea, you know, mm. using your own herbs that you've dried or fresh leaves that you've just picked and choosing the cup that reminds you of an experience you had or the <clears throat> the teapot that you select from some op shop while you were on mm. your travels somewhere around, you know, that can also be equally as intentional and and have that same ritualistic feeling because then you, you, you sit and you ponder. Might not be a wander, but it's a ponder and you and you you know, you you perch and just wonder about the world for a moment and even though you're not physically moving, there's intention in it and that can mm -hmm. be just as powerful and done from anywhere. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, just the act of making a cup of tea out there involved the ritual of Yes. Fire making, fire. you know, creating yes. the tinder bundle and creating the the, the the kindling structure and and working with my fire kit, which really <laughs> talk about a sacred tea ceremony. It was it was quite a ceremony to make a cup of tea whenever I wanted one, which of course my tea addiction went way down. Um, <laughs> but yes, that convenience factor. Yeah, that's right. Survival itself kind of had its own ritual, um, mm -hmm. but I think it's been in the years. Since then that I've apprenticed myself more to, yeah, community-generated ceremony and that kind of thing. Mm. Recently I've um, delivered a number of women's ritual gatherings and although they're really quite gentle, I feel like there's this tension in the room or a resistance um, and it's an awkward self-awareness really from those who are there. Do you think that this is just because it's unfamiliar and have you experienced this and how, how do you guide people outside of that awkwardness or that discomfort because all you're inviting them to do is usually do something that is quite gentle and quite um, introverted and, and quite intuitive 
yet people seem to be so disconnected from that that it's confronting. How are yes. you guarding <clears throat> Absolutely. <laughs> well, absolutely, I've experienced that. Um, well, there's just all sorts of tripwires when it comes to um, <laughs> to facilitating a ceremony. There's like, you know, how does it relate to Indigenous ceremony on the land? How do we how do we talk about or or include Indigenous like local Indigenous knowledge? Then there's okay if we're not privy to that, this, then what other traditions are we drawing on? Is it from our own ancestry or is it Native mm-hmm. American and and working with you know, what What seems to me really is working with like different elements, bringing different elements in and then how that kind of might tread on people's different, you know, cosmologies and tread on their toes in terms of what they, what traditions they draw from. I mean, we're, we're cobbling it together um, mm. and it's, you know, it's going How do we cobble it so it doesn't feel not- overly curated and tokenistic? How do we do it so that it feels um, purposeful and deeply intentional but not cobbled together and awkward? Yes. I think you just have to partly accept some form of awkwardness as we relearn the technologies of village building, which includes ceremony. There's, it's just going to be awkward at different times. Mm-hmm. However, if you really, if you, as a facilitator, if you resting into something that feels authentic for you if there's like you know an embodied authenticity for the for the facilitator then that is really going to help people to to rest into it and you know using kind of pan cultural tools that aren't going to really tread on people's toes too much like rhythm you know trance like percussion um using scent you know scent from incense or you know particular plants from the local area, um, using song, just these kind of pan-cultural elements, using your body movement, um, simple, simple movements that are repetitive, things that just feel good. You know, you mm-hmm. can't really argue with things that, that feel good and that that hark back to our own ancestors who all would have used those, those elements in ritual. And also what's pan-cultural is noticing what's happening in nature and opening up that space for acknowledging what's you know what are we what are we seeing at this time of the season and um sorry I I thought I had my notifications well that was was very high-pitched and so really that's appropriate not just for those of us who are trying to facilitate and bring larger groups together but for all of us in our the privacy of our own space and in the safety of our own selves creating these these processes and these rituals to try and reconnect with with self well that's right and in the vision quests that I facilitate these days I really emphasize the power of self-designed ceremony um because it's, so can it, we dig a little bit more into vision quests because it's something that I'm um yet to undertake but so close to leaping into but quite a lot of my friends are working with you and others on doing similar things Mm -hmm. and I imagine that a lot of people listening don't actually know what a vision quest Mm -hmm. is can you take us through that sure well it is a pan-cultural ceremony so again found in different forms around the world in different ways Um, but essentially the the bare structure of it is multiple days alone fasting in a wild place and it usually, like in earth-based cultures, it, it, it does mark some kind of rite of passage. And when I say rite of passage, I, I kind of mean a way to mark a transition that's already happening. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people use rite of passage as, as something that, oh, well, go and do this rite of passage and then I'll be in the next stage. It's like I see rite of passage <laughs> as a tool to mark what's already shifting um, and really to to help that threshold crossing. So, and a lot of people come to a vision. I mean, it's a strong, it's a strong gesture. It's a strong ceremony. Um, If you spend four days alone in the forest fasting out in the elements, you know, it's, it's got an element of ordeal to it for sure. Um, But that's, that's part of the technology of it is that it humbles us. It, it makes us porous and vulnerable to, some of the quieter voices, the deeper conversations that we can be having, uh, it strips us, it empties us of all things familiar. It's like fasting from all things familiar, not just food. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so that we can really have the kind of deepest conversation that we can have with ourselves, with the mystery, with the more than human world. Um, and I do really encourage <clears throat> people and part of, I mean, part of a vision quest for me or a vision fast, whatever you want to call it, is just as important as the time, is the preparation time as a community before the mm-hmm. ceremony itself and the incorporation afterwards. So that's the deep storytelling witnessed by a yes. community that is it's like the second arm of the process. Yes, and it's that integration pro- part of the process that you talked about yes. not doing very successfully for yourself when you That's re-entered right. That's right. the, the busy, bustling yeah. world. And it's certainly, okay, I love the way you frame that it's um, really just to formalise what is possibly happening anyway and enabling the, the crossing of that threshold because it certainly can't be forced upon someone and it certainly mm. can't be... Um, <laughs> instigated by anyone other than you and you absolutely have to be ready for it at the time that mm. you undertake such yeah. a, an ordeal, as yes. you put it. I want to know your thoughts on, I feel like um, over the last, and maybe this has been going on since the beginning of time, I love that you've referred to the work that you do as a technology too because and I, and I refer back to that because I'm going to need to explain what I'm thinking here. There is this evolution of um movement it feels like where people are deciding whether or not they are going to be these eco modernists and and technology will be the salvation of the world that we're creating mm. and there are those who are saying actually no i think it's time for us to hark back to our deep connection to the natural world and this will be done through you know regeneration decolonization um you know rebuilding of ritual reconnection to culture and and rebuilding of culture and I feel like there isn't this ability for the two ways of thinking to interweave Mm. which makes sense because you know one feels like it's kicking the can a little further down the road and the other one feels like it's returning back to the ways of old but without the conveniences of technology where do you sit on that on that trajectory of sort of eco-modernism at one end and that deep primal Mm. naturalistic self at the other end well I have not heard the term eco-modernist um so (laughs) that probably says a lot about where I sit on the spectrum but I also (laughs) you know here we are on a on a new technology for me um Mm. recording this podcast and um you know I'm also studying with someone who lives in the states and we're online with a group every week and it's it's I really appreciate the technology that allows us to do that. However, I think what you're speaking to is, is you know, much more um, complex than that and speaks to technology being um, much more of an agent for the kind of change that we're wanting to see. Um, I guess and it's that leaning into deep adaptation as opposed to thinking that technology will solve the complex issues that we're facing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my, my interest and my passion and my curiosity and my gut feeling is that deep adaptation is what we're really needing mm. and certainly what I'm heading towards. Mm. You know, my, the, the, the questions that I'm asking myself are, you know, how can I live well on the land, in community, such that um, the elements, of, the basic elements of our thriving of, you know, an individual to be thriving on the on the planet are taken care of um, mm-hmm. and also that I'm contributing to regenerating the earth and regenerating culture, which, of course, are mutually interwoven. mutually supportive and interwoven. Mm-hmm. Um, and how can I recreate culture through the return of um, a kind of uh, like a wisdom around the, the transitions from adolescence to adulthood. That's one mm. of my, you know, that's one of my kind of core passions is, is guiding and charting and tracking people's journeys from adolescence. And when I say adolescence, I don't mean it by age. I mean it, mean it by maturity Yes, um, into, yeah. into adulthood. And all of that for me is really deep adaptation work. And it's, it's mm. kind of, Yes, it's reclaiming in a kind of rewilding sense. It's reclaiming what's what we've lost, what we've dropped, what we've forgotten, what we've buried. But it's also re- recreating culture as we need it in a contemporary setting. Mm. 
And that's a really like a live inquiry for me. And it, it doesn't often, it doesn't often involve technology. Um, no, and it's complex mm. because there are the human nuances to it that need to be uh, addressed for all of the individuals that participate in the process. That's right. And that can never be, that can never be um, uh, formulated as a, as a, a planned structure that has to evolve as it as it unravels unfurls and there's nothing more you can do about that except be prepared and as you say so that's emotionally prepared and as you say ecologically um capable yes that's right and you know i'm speaking from the perspective of the generation that didn't have a smartphone till i was in my um early 20s yeah you know, yeah, aren't we lucky in many ways? Right. Oh, extremely so lucky. lucky. So I've got to kind of, you know, travel the Middle East without a smartphone and crossing multiple language barriers yeah. in one day and, and what the kind of tools of resilience that that gives you. But when yeah. I'm talking about recreating culture, I'm also aware that, like, you know, my partner's kids are going to be and my own child will be teenagers in a very different way to to how I was a teenager and how do we actually not just talk about re- regenerating culture but really think about and, and experiment with ways that are suitable for the yeah. kind of world that these kids are growing into where, yeah. you know, and that one of the scariest things is they have all this. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> Sorry. That time of year. I've just got. Yeah. Up my, my I'm sitting next to a very dusty wood heater because I'm sitting on top of it in this old house. It's cold, and so <laughs> keep going. Um, one of the scariest things is they have so much information about runaway climate change and ecological collapse. Mm-hmm. So they're like fully literate in in ecological crisis and mm-hmm. quite disconnected from nature. Um, and that combination simultaneously is quite dangerous. Whereas mm-hmm. for me, I was deeply steeped in nature as a child and had a growing understanding of things like, you know, climate change and the greenhouse effect and endangered species, but it was the the kind of balance was quite different. So we really need to take these contemporary factors into account. Mm. Yeah, and it changes our language, it changes our language, uh, our language, our actions, our mm. technologies and our tools, you know, it changes the way we interact. It changes the way we have confidence to lean into our intuition. It, it, it really does change the way we face into it in its entirety, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You um, do a huge amount at a community building level and I would say that collaboration and Claire Dunn kind of go hand in hand. But can you tell us a little bit about um, what it actually looks like for you to be relational in, in this? What, what is a day-to-day interactivity look like creating community is possibly one of the hardest things you'll do and possibly one of the most rewarding things you'll do I say that quite often but it, you know it requires you to be present and it requires you to be very aware of your relational interactivity what does that look like for you yeah it's a great question um I mean it's kind of ironic that I was such a, a dedicated lone wolf for some of my training and my apprenticeship in a way um, but how I've grown into that or integrated the experience has been uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that community building and particularly soul-centric nature-based community building is one of the most important aspects of regenerating culture. Um, so when I embarked on this rewilding the urban soul kind of adventure, like how can I how can I kind of put some of these practices that I've been doing out in the bush all these years into my life in in Melbourne, in the city? What I found and what speaks really clearly through my writing of the book was that the community aspect was kind of more important than anything else in a way. It's like how Mm -hmm. I could include others in that inquiry and how it was impossible not to. Um, And the the last kind of chapter or the epilogue, I don't know, really surprised me in the way that this came forward. It was a, it was during one of the lockdowns, one of the early lockdowns. It had just lifted enough to be able to kind of be in others' presence. Connect again, yeah. Connect again. And a friend and I um, decided to do this thing called a hunter-gatherers challenge where we were decided to only eat what we had either grown or foraged or had bartered from others who had grown or foraged food 
mostly in the city city limits. And <clears throat> what I kind of found was I was just crisscrossing the city on, on my bike, you know, picking up food and having conversations with people about their lockdown experiences, um, bartering for food, foraging in a way that put me in contact with all sorts of different people. And it was, you know, I had friends who were like, you know, feeding their snails bread for a month beforehand and their garden snails and saving up their <laughs> eggs from their chickens. Um, it, it was such a celebration of community. You know, it was mm. like I was, I was feasting on community that entire week. And mm, it was feeding you. It was feeding me. And it, that doesn't happen, you know, that, that only happened through years of mm. cultivating that. Mm. Um, and it was, you know, it's definitely the most joyful element of my life in the last number of years is how I've felt so surrounded by community but through, you know, through intention, through dedication, through time, through lots and lots of conversations, um, through lots of conflict, mm. it, it happens, you know, it happens through lots of hard work. And so I'm right on the threshold of moving out of that community, moving to a smaller regional community where I don't really know anyone. And it's, it's there's a whole lot of grief that comes with that. Yeah. You know, yeah, bleak. and daunt. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and overwhelm. Yeah, look, we moved nine k's up the road, and I grieved the loss yeah. of the garden and the soil that I'd nurtured, and the people who popped in whenever yeah. they passed by, and the rhythm of walking into town with the kids in the pram. Yeah. And y- there is definitely a grief associated with leaving a rhythm and a pattern, and the people that that make up all of that. Yes, which is an interesting little segue into just something I wanted to mention about um, grief as a community builder, like community mm. community ceremonies or spaces that acknowledge grief because there's so much to grieve in our world right now. And as one of my mm. mentors, John Young, points out, every earth-based culture had regular grieving ceremonies. Mm. Like that's amazing to me and it makes so much sense. And now we're actually fearful of grief, Yeah, I would say, as a culture. That is the dominant Absolutely. energy or emotion that we put behind the word grief it's it's something that we're not comfortable talking about Indira Nadu has just released her book The Space Between the Stars and essentially it's a beautiful book and mm. there's joy and, and laughter in it um, but essentially it's about grief mm. and um, you know she's she is clearly an emotionally intelligent individual who was capable of moving through the status of grief quite quickly and she's done it very openly but uh, we also talked with artists family and them acknowledging that grief mm. is potentially one of the the keys if we can unlock the way in which we inter- interact with grief then perhaps that could change the way we interact with one another and interact with the world around us that acceptance that everything has this journey that is cyclical and that it needs to end and that and that we need to celebrate what it was rather than what it hasn't been because there hasn't been more time absolutely i think i talk about it in my book as um grief is the doorway to connection Mm. You know, it it endears us to the earth. It uh, it creates intimacy <clears throat> with whoever we're grieving with, whether it's a tree or a person or a community. It you know it creates intimacy and it opens us to love. Mm. So I and it I, allows I, us to be willingly vulnerable, which yeah. so many of us aren't comfortable doing. Absolutely, there's this one a really amazing study. I can't remember where it came from now. But it talks about if children are not allowed to grieve or not encouraged to grieve, like leaving a home that they've grown up in and and all their imaginary friends and their tree friends and whatever, then they won't ever form such deep connections with place again. And that was really, yeah, that really hit me, that that study. It makes so much sense to me. And I'm actually in the process of grieving the... um, family home and farm that I grew up on my parents just sold it after 45 years and I couldn't go back there because of um the state borders were closed um and just how much you know like I went to a writers festival recently and the first question they asked me about was tell us about your favorite childhood trees and I was just like okay you're basically just asking me to ball on stage right now (laughs) (laughs) there's so much feeling around these places and um just how important it is to acknowledge the grief in, yeah, in moving for a child. So, Or even, um, and for fear of this pummeling into a um, 
uh, story about my early childhood that then leads into grief. So I left my dad when I was 15 or 14. I stopped seeing my dad and it was the property that I grew up on. And as you're talking, I'm remembering all of the red spotty toadstools that um, my childhood friends and I spent weeks and days and hours and, you know, most of our childhood um, creating imaginary stories around. Mm -hmm. And I left quite quickly and didn't go back and the reality is I'll probably never really reconnect with that property again he's still there and I'm reconnected with my dad but um, the reality of having to leave a childhood home at a time that's really fragile Mm. because your sense of identity is yet to be formed and all of those intellectualized um, and hormonal issues that you're navigating at that time is a really complex time and it yeah, it's just making me wonder whether or not that, that in fact was another layer that I actually never addressed at the time and that until you said it just five minutes ago, maybe maybe it's never been addressed mm. and maybe that is the reality. Finding place is a really difficult process and mm. if you haven't actually been able to navigate that in a way that allows all of the emotions to be experienced as yep. a child, you don't ever do it as an adult. Yeah, <clears throat> that's right. So recognising the obstacles for us as adults to really put our roots down Mm. um you know if we've been burnt if we haven't ever like grieved places that we've moved from we 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 protect ourselves just like in any kind of relationship if we've been heartbroken but Mm. of course the sacrifice to that is never feeling a true sense of belonging and therefore never really feeling Mm. that deep caretaker kind of love that naturally Mm. flows from that place Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. You talk a lot about, and and there's sort of this rising discussion or galvanising discussion about rewilding and undomesticating and decolonising and all of these things which could just be words but it feels like it's a return to really humanity as we've known it for 90, what is it, 90, 98% of our actual existence. It's really only been the last hundred or two hundred years that we've lived slightly differently and it should feel natural it should feel primal but there is this resistance because our modern day commitment to convenience and creature comforts is just so dominant what do you say to those who aren't ready or who are actively resisting or don't you do you just let them come in their own time Well, I mean, my work generally puts me into contact with people who are either really in the inquiry and really excited and curious about rediscovering and reclaiming those parts of their ancestry that have been forgotten about, or those who are, you know, kind of on the bridge, they've, they've got, you know, they're kind of got their, their ears out there. The kangaroo ears kind of tuned to what else might be out there. Um, and I don't, I don't really feel compelled to convince anyone of anything that they're not already curious about. Um, but it's, you know, rewilding such a great word in and of itself. It's so evocative and it just it speaks to the heart of something we know is missing and that kind of wildness that is not about, you know, chaos or disorganisation um, but is is about our full expression, our full creative expression, our full um, potential of our animal bodies to be well and thriving and, and for our, um, you know, our full expression of our emotional bodies and for the capacity to have deep relationships with all sorts of creatures and plants and animals. So when you start talking about what's, um, you know, what's possible, like what's possible for the human in terms of, creativity and love and vision and um and energy and vitality and quiet mind all these things Mm. that so many of us struggle to find you know like both both the energy to really feel so vital but also the capacity to have that quietness of mind and that deep attuned listening these kind of aspects of our being when you speak of these in terms of rewilding it's it's most people are sparked by it you know mm. they feel that they feel the truth of that in some way or they they're watching their children grow up and like they know there's something wrong here they're addicted mm. to the screens 
Um, they're not outside playing like their parents did. Like we all, we can all see the signs of, um, you know, kind of the pathology of Western culture, you know, obesity and ADHD and rising depression and anxiety. You speak of these kind of conditions and link it to nature deficit and community deficit, elder deficit. And there's, there's, it's not hard to find a, a bridge for people with this mm. whole project of rewilding because it's so broad and it's so all-encompassing of, yeah, looking to that 98% of, of human culture, that 98% of our, of our human history and, like, what have we lost? What can we, what can we choose? How can we choose differently in our contemporary life? And mm. really making it a, uh, like a project of it's not all or nothing. It's really yes. questioning what we can change um, what elements we can bring in, what elements we can let go of, um, and just starting to kind of make some of those choices. It's it's certainly not giving up everything and going back to some hunter-gatherer ideal, but making smart choices for our mm. vitality. Mm-hmm. There is this global movement um, towards urbanisation and I think I read somewhere that by 2050, 90% of us will live in urban environments. Hence, I gather the the whole uh, reason for writing your second book. Um, but it seems to have left us bereft of a deep connection to country. And when I talked with Tyson Yanka Porter about this, he stated that the way out, and that was largely because of the way I'd asked him the question, but he said the way out is for us to remove as many abstractions as possible from us to connect to the land around us. But given that we are mostly urban-based, I'm really eager to, and I haven't actually read your book. I would love to read it. I just haven't got to it. Uh, It's on our bedside table. Um, Where do we begin? You just said it's not all or nothing. What are the small things that those who are faced with a daily view of the the nearby freeway or, you know, living in a a literal concrete jungle, Mm. what are their steps to remove some of those abstractions and start to rebuild what a rewilding reality could look like. Yeah, removing abstractions is a great is a great way to think about it really because it's like trying to make tangible our life support systems in any way. Yeah. So, you know, shelter, water, fire, food, uh, energy. Um, so, yeah, getting creative with with how we make tangible our life support systems. And our, you know, broadly our life support system being our embeddedness with the web of life. So, you know, you could either look to practical ways of doing that, which would involve like some really basic food growing on your balcony or your veranda or your backyard or so forth, or catching some of your water, or at least learning where your water comes from when you turn the tap on and where it goes when you when you pull the plug. So yeah. kind of just connecting those dots, like becoming literate in where does your power come from? Where does your water come from? Where does your food come from? So making, you know, making choices to, to um, buy food, you know, direct from farmers, for instance, or like becoming educated in how we, how our life is actually supported. And then if we can take on any of that responsibility ourselves or we're in our local community, that's even more tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess the other arm would be more of that kind of um, nature observation and awareness, like um, putting ourselves back in the landscape rather than kind of perching on a like, you know, kind of concrete perch, stepping outside and actually looking around, touching it, touching it being stirred by it, um, letting ourselves stir it, like putting ourselves back in the landscape, asking those questions like what's what is a raptor that, that feeds in my area, that hunts in my area? What's the first bird of the morning in any diff- in any given season? Um, what's what is there a fox that lives around here and where does it where does it trail? Like what where does which direction does the weather come in from? And just those kinds of basic understandings of what's moving through the landscape, what mm. flat what what's the nearest edible wild plant to my front door or back door? 
So mm. taking your shoes off, we invite our, our school kids when they come to the farm to take their shoes off and they always look at me twice and then they look at their teacher and then they look at back to back to me to say, really, do you genuinely want us to take our shoes off and put them on the ground? And it, it almost feels like they're seeking permission and can't believe that they've just heard correctly that they've mm-hmm. been invited to put their bare feet on the earth. Yeah, simple things, exactly. Mm. Bare feet mm. on the earth and, and slow your walk right down. Mm, and observe 15 deeply. minutes of fox walking in your parkland will yeah. you know will send will put you in a kind of much more of a connected state than than just the kind of you know jogging loop so it's those yeah, ways right. to go down take notice make more tangible how we're connected to our life support systems and of course mm. those layers can go deeper and deeper depending on on time and inclination and where you're at the very uh, final question I would la- like to ask you, um, and I, I know this already because of the actions that you're taking and the fact that you have a small human e- evolving in your belly, <laughs> uh-huh. but um, hope. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of talk about excessive and unnecessary hope that isn't helpful, but you, you must have hope. We know the reality of the world that we're in and sometimes that feels hopeless, mm. but you, you don't bring another human into this world without a very deep, strong sense of hope. What mm. is it that actually drives your hope? Well, part of it I think, Jade, is just understanding that um, there's so much I don't understand and that mm-hmm. we're part of the great mystery that is uh, far beyond what I can comprehend and and yes, yes, turn my attention to the very real um, grief of the spectre of runaway climate change, etc. Mm. And know that I cannot comprehend on a, on a scale of kind of uh, Earth's evolution what's at play here. You know mm. what, what what's what's really what's really at play here. I can't comprehend that. All I can do, and this is where Joanna Macy's idea of active hope is so useful, mm-hmm. all I can do is um, take the steps and contribute to a kind of life-affirming culture in all the ways that feel most life-affirming to me. So hope mm-hmm. for me comes from knowing that, you know, my purpose when I get up is to contribute to this big turning of the wheel of, of the Earth's evolution but I can't ever know the impacts of my actions. I All I can do is um, take hope in how I am acting and how many of those millions of, of us around the world are contributing in, in the ways that we can and the, and the ways that give us most joy. And I, I really I love this quote by Harold Thurman. He says, don't ask what the world needs of us. Ask what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs most right now are people who have come alive. Yeah. And I that's kind of a, a creed for me, if you like. It's it's inherently hopeful without needing wishful thinking or without needing to know where things are gonna are gonna end up. Mm. And it harks back right to the very beginning of where we began today in the fact that you titled yourself Nature's Apprentice. Mm. It's all of the information that you don't know. It's all of the information that you're curious to know Mm. and it brings you to life and it makes you alive in everything that you do every day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, as as an apprentice, it's my role just to kind of be be a good student (laughs) <laughs> be a good student and, and to give away my knowledge freely as freely as possible um, mm, keep your so. kangaroo ears pricked that's right while the breadth and depth of Claire's words continue to wash over us let me tell you about the next conversation in a fortnight I will chat with Christine Harper who is author of Anti-Trend Christine is a Dane who's currently living in Bali with a long and celebrated career in design and technology Her research focuses on sustainable product design, philosophical aesthetics, aesthetic nourishment, and above all else, the social and ecological responsibility of the design world. So join us in a couple of weeks for that conversation. We've had a flurry of supportive messages from our Future 7 community since getting back on the airwaves over the last month, so it's rather lovely to know that you've been missed. 
Thanks also to those who've jumped onto the Buy Me A Cuppa link in the show notes and donated to the pod. Kate, who bought us five cuppers, said, when I listen to Future Steading, I become instantly calm. It makes me want to get on a plane and fly to Australia right away. Thank you for reminding me that little things matter and that everyday people can make a difference. So on that note, I'm getting out of your ears so that both of us can go and get on with some of those little things. I'll be back in two weeks. Until then, go gently. 